This is the Van City Church Podcast. The following guest teaching from Bethany Allen is part three in the series, Practicing the Way, Simplicity. The ancient spiritual discipline of simplicity overflows from a disposition of contentment, contentment in a season of abundance and in life's great droughts. How do we, as disciples of Jesus, cultivate contentment in a world built on the propaganda of excess? Hey, COVID Van City. Huh? I haven't seen you since COVID. That wasn't great either. All right. Um, how's it going? Okay. Honestly, it's quiet in here. Peter, how are you doing? Good, good. Listen, I want to call out the elephant in the room. I had a bit of an accident today, just in case you can see it. I spilled coffee all down my pants. And it's like a faux pas when you're teaching. I just didn't have time to go home and change. So don't let this distract you or keep you from what God's doing, okay? Whew, tough crowd in here. Thank you. All right. Uh, like Josh said, I'm Bethany, if we haven't met. And, um, and I'm so excited that I get to step into this series. We finished this series a while back. So revisiting it was like, oh yeah, going back to center, kind of working through these things again. And uh, rumor has it you're a couple weeks into your series, which is great. Sounds a little bit better organized than ours was. Um, so that's exciting. Uh, but tonight I hope just to kind of add to the things that Josh spoke to, even specifically last week, and to maybe just help build out in a um, more of a spiritual context this idea of simplicity. So with that, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. It was Independence Day 1979 when President Jimmy Carter addressed the nation with a famous speech called the Crisis of Confidence, or more famously dubbed the Malaise Speech. In it was this profound statement. He said, human identity is no longer defined by what one does, but by what one owns. We've discovered that owning things and consuming things does not satisfy our longing for meaning. We've learned that piling up material goods cannot fill the emptiness of lives, which have no confidence or purpose. Now, there's lots here, but essentially in this statement, President Carter was saying or highlighting that we, as Americans, have a happiness or satisfaction problem. And that stuff, what we consume and have, is at the heart of the issue. It's no secret that we as Americans are obsessed with feeling good, with feeling happy. In fact, it is now a scientific reality that we are, despite a myriad of social and economic achievements, despite a technological revolution and a ratio of wealth most of the world would marvel at, still dissatisfied, still at our core unhappy people who are longing for more. It's what sociologists and psychologists are calling the happiness crisis, a crisis rooted in the fact that while happiness is an innate and natural desire, it is also an insatiable one, driving many to consume more and more with the promise of satisfaction, only to be left more empty, dissatisfied, and estranged from their actual needs being met. This leaves them in what they call a cycle that they can't escape. It's this perpetual narrative that they can't break free from. 
In his article in the Seattle Times, Dick Meyer summed up this crisis perfectly when he said, despite the statistics that prove that humans never had it so good, we don't feel so good. On every page of the human story, we find no man or woman exempt from this wrestle. So the question we have to ask ourselves, the question you're asking yourselves as a church is what do we do? And is there a way to reconcile our desire for happiness and at the same time find peace and satisfaction for our souls? Today we're going to look at what the scriptures have to say about this. So look down with me. You should have your Bibles open to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to pick up in verse 10. Paul writes this to the church of Philippi. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you, your, at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. This is a passage of scripture that undoubtedly many of you are familiar with, but I just want to provide for us a little context as we look at this a bit more in depth. This is us picking up, as we're reading here, the end of Paul's letter to this church. Um, it's a letter he wrote during his imprisonment in Rome. Now this church, while known for their wealth and often indulgent lifestyle, had sent Paul a financial gift and in verse 10, we actually find him responding to it. He was highlighting his gratitude, but also their heart in giving it. And what Paul is doing in this introductory phrase is reminding the Philippians that his thankfulness for their giving was not because he was needy, though at the time he was, but because it was good for them to be people who were free to give. In verse 11, Paul says something pretty simple and yet is layered with deep meaning. He tells his reader that he has learned to be content whatever his circumstances, that he's been in seasons of need and in seasons where he had more than enough. And still he says in verse 12 that he has learned the secret of being content in every situation. There are two things here that I don't want us to miss that are really important in this conversation. The first is what Paul means when he says he's learned to be content. Content here in the Greek means satisfied with what one has and free from the need of external aid or circumstances. The image here is that of something that's containing self-sufficiency or self-satisfying kind of satisfying resources within its own design. It's not in need of anything. It's already whole. It has everything it needs. So here we find Paul saying that he has learned to be satisfied, soul-satisfied, both with what he has and with who he is. That no matter his circumstance or situation, he is a soul at rest or at peace. Now, the second thing I want you to notice is how Paul says he's learned to be content. Key word there is learned. And he says this twice. The word learned here is monothono. It's the discipline or the practice in which one directs their mind to something and it produces an external result. More simply put, it means to learn through and by experience. Meaning, that contentment is not just a spiritual idea or something apprentices of Jesus are just going to happen upon. Instead, it is a discipline. It's something that was formed in Paul. 
something that he learned and learned through experience. So from possessions to influence, Paul now knew that none of these things could or would satisfy the ache for happiness within. And that makes sense, right? Because we know that from Paul's life that he encountered both really good and really bad realities. The hard and the easy, abundance and scarcity. And through walking all of those paths, we see his heart growing in satisfaction, making it clear that what he possessed and who he was to others was insufficient to meet that deep soul ache within him. He had learned who and what it was that could bring this true satisfaction this true contentment. Now in verse 13, one of our final verses, we find Paul saying that the only thing that met or satisfied his ache within was Jesus, was the one who gives him strength. Or another way to read that is the one who empowers or enables him to do so, making Jesus and dependence on him central and key to experiencing contentment. Now every person even the most spiritual among us, will at one time be confronted with reconciling the ache within, the need or the desire to feel, feel or fulfill, feel fulfilled within. I mean, that's a, that's a tongue twister. Let's all do that together. I'm kidding. Feel, I mean, I'll do it. Feel fulfilled within to satisfy and feel happy, to, to reconcile who they are and how they feel within that existence. The problem is contentment doesn't come naturally to any of us, and how we pursue it is often contrary to how we actually achieve it. We can trace that all the way back to our parents in the garden. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the first ache of discontentment make its way into the heart of a woman named Eve. Satan comes to her and tempts her, not with a call for gluttonous consumption or a Prada bag, but rather an idea. The idea that God was depriving her and Adam of something good or better. That what he had provided would ultimately fall short of what she actually wanted. That she would potentially get from him not all that she truly desired. Does that sound familiar? So she, a finite being, in a moment decided that she knew better and would now be in charge of satisfying her infinite desires. Eve's craving has become our own. We've inherited this ache of discontentment. The questions of God depriving us of something good or better still lingers in our hearts today, and it pushes us to find a remedy. Lots of us keep thinking things like, there has to be more for me, a better house, a better husband, Children, more money, a better job, better health, intellect, or beauty, leaving us subject and enslaved to a driving, insatiable desire to satisfy our fleshly appetite and to do so in any way we know how. Paul's words to the Philippians, while they could seem simple and seemingly polite, are actually profound because it's here that Paul was prophetically speaking into a culture that understood full well the metrics of abundance, of gluttony, all fueled by this ache and desire for happiness and satisfaction. Notice that Paul wasn't speaking to them in this text as though he didn't understand their reality. He was speaking to them as though he did. 
He wasn't offering an anecdotal lesson. His message of contentment was a deep prophetic invitation to a tested freedom he knew well. Contentment wouldn't simply be a disposition born of indifference or apathy or desperation. It would be a self-sufficient, it wouldn't be self-sufficient in the ordinary way or the common sense of that term. Contentment is not egotistic delusion, but rather, he declares, it is a satisfying byproduct of holy union, of salvation, marked by humility, dependence, and trust. Jeremiah Burrow, a leading and scholarly voice on contentment, once said, a soul that is capable of God can be filled with nothing else but God. And I think that what he and Paul are getting at here is that contentment is the holy means to a restless end. That it is the antidote to greed and gluttony. That it is the remedy to the senseless striving we all feel. And it is the birthplace of a life of simplicity. Now, if rightly ordered, contentment will actually move us at a heart and soul level towards a life of simplicity. And you really can't have one without the other. Think about this. If you are content, satisfied at a soul level, you are extinguishing the fire of more in your life. The burning desire to look a certain way or to temporarily fulfill the ache of happiness, to get more, to buy more, to own more, all of that being satisfied, leading you really to only consume what you need, making simplicity an easy practice. But if you aren't content, simplicity will be impossible because the lens through which you view your needs will be tainted by the driving impulse of more. The beauty of the practice of simplicity is that it has this profound way of revealing what we actually believe about ourselves, what we believe about God, and what we believe about others. It forces us to look in the mirror, literally, and to confront the reality and condition of our soul. Simplicity is a practice, it's a discipline, not because it makes your life look a certain way or because it gives you credibility on Instagram. It is a practice because when it is done well, it is a deeply refining, transformative work that is costly and painful and revealing. Simplicity is the practice of undoing or becoming undone. It's the work of soul freedom, of sanctification that transforms not just your internal life, but your external life as well. True simplicity is birthed from holy contentment. Each fuel the other. Each perpetuates the necessity of the other. Contentment produces simplicity which in turn produces more contentment, which in turn, based in the very satisfaction of our souls, leads us to simplify even more, and that cycle continues. A few months ago, our pastor, John Mark, talked about something he called the center, or the holy center. The center point of bliss was his exact language. And um, he used this in reference to something that John Wesley was speaking about, Anyway, his point was that, as apprentices of Jesus, we are called to look within, but not to ourselves, to God's spirit. And that line has stayed with me over the past few months because in it, I am and have been confronted with the reality that when I look within to the center, when I look and find Jesus there, I do know that I have everything I need in him. And yet, I still 
even after years of spiritual formation, believe and buy into the illusion that I need something more. I believe the practice of simplicity is really about coming face to face with our center and asking the question, is my soul content? Contentment is this call to the center, and when embraced, it does three powerful things. If you're taking notes, this would be a, this would be a time to take some. First, uh, it teaches you to see and value what's important. Contentment provides for us the lens we need to distinguish between our wants and our needs, which frees us up to find a balance of our desires and to connect with who and what we actually need. It moves our focus off ourselves and gives us space to see the world around us for the ways that it really is, which is powerful, and we need a lot more of that, especially in the church. Contentment is this great slowing agent. It calls for the soul to see the good. It draws our eyes to the things that actually carry weight, to the things we have missed before because of our rushed impulse, this kind of need um, to satisfy the ache within us. Contentment teaches us to see and value what's important. Next, it releases you from the tyranny of more. Contentment doesn't relieve the absence of desire, but it does teach you to be satisfied with where you are and what you have. It frees you from the oppressive and dictating reality of the elusive more. You're not playing its game anymore. You're not buying into the agenda of marketers around the world. You're able to be free from that kind of hamster wheel of I need more. I need to be satisfied in this way or that way. And that's the gift within it. Finally, I'd say that it roots you in the present. Now, in the realm of spiritual formation, this is where work is done. You, you are not spiritually formed in your past, and you are not spiritually formed in your future. If God is at work in you, he is doing it here and now. Can God work outside of time? Totally. But in the realm of spiritual formation, we're talking about where God does the most work. It's right here in this moment. And the gift of contentment is it draws you to now, to your present. Contentment tethers you to what is, not what isn't. It demands you see what's happening before your eyes, who you are now, what you actually have. And it's in the present that you're able to see actively, not with wanting eyes, what God is doing right within you in this moment. Contentment, in the language of the psalmist, teaches us to number our days. It calls us to remember that we are a vapor, and it ultimately transforms what we value. Okay, so I can, I can just hear it. You're all going, yeah, we totally want to do that. You're a quiet bunch. You all are like, we all want to do this, so how do we do it? Great question. I'm glad you asked. Um, let's get to it. In the work of spiritual formation, we constantly have to reorient ourselves. This is what we're constantly doing in this work of being changed into the likeness of Jesus. We have to reorient our hearts, our thinking, our bodies. All of these things have to conform to God's invitation. And when it comes to contentment, we will also have to reorient in a major way. We're going to have to reorient how we find joy, what we name as valuable in our life, what we hold up as our priorities. And even more than that, we will have to allow Jesus to be the one who determines not only the value, but the necessity of what it is that we're holding up as valuable. 
And that's not an easy job to do, but it's essential if we're going to be transformed by this work of contentment. Practically speaking, there are six things we can do to start cultivating contentment, and I want to give you those. Um, just full disclosure, I stole these. I've got it earmarked here. I stole these um, from Joshua Becker, who wrote a book called Becoming Minimalist. It's a great resource. If you're like, I just want to read something simple, please don't you know, ascribe Willard to me. I can't focus. The guy's all over the place. Joshua is different than that. He's great. Um, so he offers six places for us to start, and I want to share those with you. I've added a few more. Um, adapted a few of these, but this is essentially what he says. First, again, if you're taking notes, this is a great moment for that. He says, we are to practice gratitude. It's impossible to develop contentment without gratitude. The two are inseparable. I've done this in my own life where I try to just do my own thing over here. I kind of do the thing that I'm being asked to do. I have enough of that in my personality, the type A kind of driven. I'll just accomplish it, get it done. It doesn't actually produce the transformation. This is one of those moments where that's collided in my life. Just not feeling the need to produce or to lean into the space of gratitude has kept me from actually being a content person. So practice gratitude. Grateful people are those who have learned to focus on the good things in their life, not the things they are missing or the things that they lack. And you can start small. This can look like making a list of the good things in your life. It may sound silly, but it's actually a really powerful exercise if you've ever tried it. It could also look like a two-minute kind of meditation in the morning, calling to mind what you're grateful for. That's a really healthy exercise. Maybe you can talk about the things you're grateful for at your dinner table. I don't know if you have small humans or roommates or friends, whatever. You could just talk it through. We're trying to do this in our community a bit. It's trying to put gratitude back on the table and kind of keeping it central to what we're doing. So we're trying to say, man, what are we thankful for this week and how do we say this? And if it's specifically about some person, how do we bless them in front of other people? Pretty simple exercise and it goes a long way. Now, sometimes, like I said, I need help with this one. So um, I do force myself to tell someone a few things I'm grateful for every day. So if you're like me and it comes, it's not like I'm not a grateful person, I'm just a busy person like everyone else on the planet and I get lost in my own world, which isn't saying a lot. But I just really force myself to do that and most of the time it ends up being the grocery clerk, which is completely fine. It's the most normal conversation I'm having all day long, you know? But I just try to tell them what I'm grateful for. Thank you for, you know, Thank you for double bagging it. We have lost that as an art in this society, honestly. Uh, so I'll say that. Thank you for being here and working, especially during COVID times. Thanks for you know, just being present to what our needs are, restocking the shelves, all that kind of stuff. It's just a little exercise that goes a long way and forces me into a posture of thinking about others and giving thanks to them in that moment. Practicing gratitude, integrating it into your life with intention, will undoubtedly shift and cultivate a heart that is oriented around what you have and who you are as opposed to what you don't have and who you aren't. This is the key to doing that, keeping gratitude at the forefront of who you are and how you live your life. Next, Joshua says that we should take captive our thoughts. That's obviously Paul's language, which I hijacked. It wasn't exactly what Joshua said, but I think it's really helpful. The mind is the place of transformation. We learn that through science. We've learned that even through the work of spiritual formation. And this is a massive part of us becoming people who are content. From the scriptures to neuroscience, we know that what we think about shapes our reality. We know we can even create new neural pathways of thoughts and feelings in our mind. 
So a person who lacks contentment in their life will often engage in the when and then thinking. When I get to fill in the blank, then I will be happy, or then I will be successful, or then I will have what I want, or then I'll feel a certain way. The call for us, particularly as apprentices of Jesus, is to pay attention to what we're thinking about, to where you allow your thoughts to go, and to, in that moment, not give in to the influence of them, but to actually hold them up to Jesus. Let him speak to them. Let him shape them. Let him call you to repentance. Let him kind of reorient you by means of his compassion. Remember, in order to take something captive, you have to name what it is. In psychology, therapists often use the phrase, name it to tame it, meaning transformation or really transforming our discontentment starts with naming where we feel discontent. Don't be afraid to do it. Lean into it. Be mindful of what you think about and how it's shaping the condition and the desires of your heart. And I'll add one thing to that. What you are looking about informs what you're thinking about. So if you're on a, on a social media site, for example, that perpetuates this if-then kind of narrative, then probably it's best to take that offline. Okay, next. Um, simply put, stop buying things, at least for a while. And look, this is coming from someone who loves a good shopping trip and a new outfit, like a lot. You know, I'm single, so there are very few small humans that I'm spending my money on. So this is not necessarily an easy one for me. I think that for many of us, it has been ingrained into our lives that the proper way to diffuse discontentment is to purchase the outward item that is seemingly causing the discontentment. Almost no energy is spent uh, determining the root of our discontentment when we move to purchasing or buying certain things. Are you dissatisfied with your body? Well, go buy new clothes. You're not content with your vehicle? Go buy a new one. You don't like your house? Just get a bigger one. That's the kind of mentality we're working with, and all of that perpetuates our discontentment. It doesn't ease the ache of it. We've gotten into the habit of satisfying our discontentment by simply spending more money. And the truth is, for most of us, we have to break that habit, that cycle we've been living in. Sometimes the deprivation of something is exactly what we need in order to see it for what it really is and what it really does in our life. The next time you recognize this discontentment surfacing in your life, refuse to give in to that bad habit. And instead, commit to be better and to better understand yourself and why the lack of that item is causing discontentment within you. Only after you intentionally break the habit will true contentment begin to surface. And you'll be able to see your life as it really is, what's really going on inside. Next, Joshua would say, let go of comparison. Comparing your life with someone else's will always lead to discontentment. Da-da-da, that's the whole point. There will always be someone who appears to be better off than you or seemingly living the perfect life. Always, always, always. I remember my mom would always say that. There's always going to be someone who's prettier than you, funnier than you, cuter than you, which is kind of like sad now that I'm repeating it back to myself. But it was good. It was good knowledge for someone who was growing up and going like, okay, I live in this kind of world. That's the point here. We'll always compare ourselves, this is the fact, we will always compare ourselves to the worst of what we know about ourselves, to the best assumptions that we have about others. And that is disproportionately effective in every way. People's lives are never as perfect in your mind as they are in real life, just never the case. So stop comparing yourself 
Get out of that headspace, that place of competition, and allow reality to tell you the truth about yourself and others. And this is a great space to invite the Spirit of God to come in and bear witness to the true things about what he's doing in you and who he's made you to be. Next, we're almost there, guys. We're almost to the end. This is fifth. Next, regularly invest in the life of others. When you begin helping other people, sharing your talents, your time, your money, you will find yourself learning to be content. This practice forces you to look beyond your life and your circumstances into someone else's. And it grants you perspective not only of who you are, but of who you could be, of who it is that you are becoming. Do this out of a place of love, not for it. Out of yourself and not ignoring it. Investing in others calls you forward and it demands you look at what it is that you have and see it as good and as a good offering or a good gift to somebody else. And that's a game changer. Now, finally, and sixth, in the words of Joshua Becker, be content with what you have, never with what you are. Which I kind of thought was insightful. Be content with what you have, never with what you are. Becker's point here is to keep growing, to keep leaning in, to keep going to the center and facing Jesus and doing this over and over again. Another way to say this is keep being spiritually formed and transformed into the likeness of Jesus. Practice contentment. Push into what it is that feels hard and let it reveal what is still broken and still needs healing in your life. Contentment is not the same as complacency. Instead, it is a call towards greater holiness. And holiness leads us into that kingdom of God life, that kingdom of God way of living. It's a place of freedom, not a place of bondage. For the apprentice of Jesus, the journey towards contentment can often feel overwhelming and far off. That was very true for me, especially when John Mark kept talking about it at the beginning. Josh, by his very lifestyle, is a challenge. It's like a threat. At some, you know what I mean? Like, wow, He's, he does this well in the best way, but it's, it does something to us. It feels difficult. How can I do that? How can I get to that point? In fact, I think it's funny, but many of us are discontent about our discontentment. That's a real thing. But while the invitation and transformation of contentment will require lots of patience and fortitude, it will also begin its work immediately. And that's the gift of this discipline or of this practice. Meaning we can, in a moment, be freed from the tyranny of what our world demands. We can find reprieve and soul-level freedom in the places where we have only known slavery to something or some elusive demand. Contentment realigns us to a dependence on the only one who can satisfy our souls. And so my hope for you, especially as you all are on this journey in this practice, is that contentment would be the foundation of our radical lives in the kingdom, which is we've never been called to more than in in this moment and in this season. My hope is that you would be free, that you would be people who know what's really important and give yourselves to that end. That your contentment would be a prophetic witness to the reality of God's goodness. And our lives would, through this practice of simplicity, reflect the true peace and joy of the kingdom of God that is coming, not yet in full, but is coming nonetheless. 
With that, would you stand with me? We're just going to pray and take a minute just to respond to Jesus. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.